0: It is a huge joy to be with you this morning. I'm very grateful for apostles and your life together, particularly your perseverance during this uh, pandemic. I know it's been hard. Uh, I know on one hand, if you're sitting at home on Zoom or uh, live streaming, you get to have your own cup of coffee, but that's about the only good part about it. Uh, It's really something to be uh, finally getting to a place where we can begin to gather uh, together again. Uh, grateful for your leadership, uh, for the ways in which they've guided you through this uh, difficult season. I, w- I went to seminary. I don't remember everything I'm st- I studied at the time, but I'm quite sure we didn't have a course on how to lead during a pandemic. Um, but your team has done a, a, a superb job. It's a joy to be with them. Great to be with the Vestry last night to hear how God has faithfully uh, shepherded this congregation uh, during this uh, season. I'm going to start in a strange way. It may be the strangest start I've ever had for a sermon, uh, although my wife might disagree with me. Um, I want to start with the words for a song from one of my favorite Broadway lyricists, Alan J. Lerner. He wrote My Fair Lady and Camelot, Gigi which began as a movie and ended up as a Broadway show, uh, other hits as well. I love musicals, I love Broadway, I grew up not far from New York City, I, my folks would take me into Broadway shows, uh, we'd see them open in New Haven and then move to Broadway, uh, And. Um, and I also went in as a teenager with a friend to, to see various shows. I've always loved it. It's always been part of my life. And, um, and it's so much so that one of my daughters became a theater director. That's her, that's been her career uh, and teaching theater. But instead of talking about one of Alan J. Lerner's great hits, I want to talk about a song from one of his least successful shows. Uh, It was made into a movie, which was also not very successful, despite the fact that it had Barbara Streisand. The show was entitled On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. And let me be clear, the heart of the show is about reincarnation, which no Christian should believe in. But having said all that, There's one song lyric I want to share because I'm going to change the words slightly in a few minutes to raise a very serious question. So bear with me. In the show, the main character, Daisy Gamble, describes to her therapist her past life as a woman named Melinda. And she does it with uh, such uh, vitality that... In the course of their sessions together, Mark, the therapist, begins to be attracted to Melinda. To the previous version of Daisy. And the moment that that's taking place, Daisy in the meantime is falling in love with Mark, the therapist. I'm not sure that they would even allow that show nowadays. But there comes a funny moment in the show when Daisy realizes that she is competing with her previous self for the affections of Mark. Let me be clear, it, it was a comedy. And so she sings this witty song with lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. I won't sing you the song out of great love for you. Um, and I'm not gonna quote the whole thing, but it's, it's It's a fascinating song. Now, I need to say that it became something of a hit after the show uh, came out, but people misinterpreted it. They didn't know the plot of the show, of course. And so they were thinking that it's a woman looking back at the way she used to be when her husband or her boyfriend or whatever used to love her, but something's changed and he doesn't care about her anymore. And it, it can be read that way, but that's not what's going on in the show at all. So here are the words. Thinking back to Daisy's battle with Melinda, her former self. What did I do that I don't do the way I did before? What isn't there that once was there? What have I got a great big lack of? This is my favorite line. Wouldn't I be the late great me if I knew how? Oh what did I have? I don't have now. You can imagine why people would interpret it in a different way. What did I have that I don't have now? Well, my rewrite will come in a minute. But before you think I've lost my mind entirely, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. You're doing a series on Acts. I commend it. There was a time in my ministry where I took a year and went through the book of Acts for the congregation. And it had a powerful effect, not my teaching, but the story and the events of Acts uh, themselves. You remember the background of the scene and and the part of Acts chapter 4 you just heard read. Uh, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, they encounter a lame man. Uh, they ha- say they have no money for this beggar, but they, in the name of Jesus, can heal him. And they bring him to his feet, and he's radically healed. And then Peter and John are arrested or kept overnight in prison. or uh, and, and move. And the next day, they have to defend themselves. And at one point, in the course of telling the story... Peter says this, he said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, he's speaking to the leaders of of Jerusalem, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was a radical world in those days. In a a world of, first of all, the Jewish belief in the one God, so who is, who is Jesus? But of course, he's also speaking to leaders that are Gentiles, non-Jews, who believe in many gods. But it's still a radical word today because we still live in a culture where people think there are multiple ways to have a spiritual life or multiple ways to get to God. And, and Peter says, no, there's really only no one else because it's all through Jesus. No, no other religious leaders. Leader or teacher has ever died for the sins of the people. So the defense goes on. There's a back and forth, and in verse 13, if you've got your Bibles open, and I do encourage that, uh, or your phones open with a Bible, that counts. Um, Acts 4:13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Not only had Peter and John been with Jesus during his ministry here, but their their boldness is coming out of the fact that they've seen the risen Jesus. In fact, there's no other explanation for the radical change that takes place from them being terrified disciples to being boldly uh, preaching in front of the authorities. goes on to say, when they, the, the leaders, had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened going back to that healing. Boldness. Now, I don't know what you would have done next if you'd just been released from prison. Uh, You know the uh, authorities are still threatening you. The question I want to think about is, what made the early church bold? And why are we different? Why are we less bold? So let me tweak the song I quoted before. I mean, we're all part of one church throughout all the ages. But it is helpful to think of the early church in comparison to where we are, compared to the church in America. And let me use the words this way. What did they do that we don't do the way they did before? What isn't there that once was there? What have we got a great big lack of? Wouldn't we be like they were if we knew how? What did they have we don't have now? Now, I don't want to argue a romantic view of the church. That's been a plague in the church over the years. If we could just be like the early church. The early church was a mess. You'll discover it as you continue through Acts. Uh, They had conflicts. They had legalism. They were in the midst of uh, both religious opposition and a very secular culture. Uh, Later on in the New Testament, you discover that they had rampant sexual immorality within the church. They had lawsuits. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Paul, at one point, uh, predicts that they will have more than their fair share of false teachers, which he, whom he calls wolves. They had leaders who made huge mistakes. So I'm not sure we want to go back and to be just like the early church, but I do want us to notice a few things in the rest of chapter 4 that we should be looking at to re-examine our own lives and re-examine our life together in Christ. I'm going to leave a set of questions for you to wrestle with uh, after we look at the passage. So I'm not, no simple answers, no easy applications, just some things for you to be thinking about going forward. First thing I want you to notice, though, is that they had a large view of God. J.B. Phillips, a New Testament translator, once wrote a book called Your God is Too Small, and that problem is still with us. Our God is too small. They had a large view of God. Verse 24 of chapter 4. says, when they heard the the people, uh, the believers uh, heard uh, John Peter's report, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God, and they begin by saying, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. The word translated with two words here, Sovereign Lord. It's one word in the Greek, and it's actually the word from which we get the word despot. Which means somebody who has complete control, who's got all the power, uh, who makes all of the decisions, who is ruling, we might say, on a human level with an iron fist. But they're seeing this word positively. Here is the God who is ruling over them with all power and all authority. He's the God who's created heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. The word creator uh, comes from the word to make, and it's the same word used of a potter making uh, a a piece of pottery. You are the one who handcrafted creation. We could put it that way. Not just the heaven and earth, the sea, but everything in them every atom, every ray of light, everything visible and beyond our vision made by this creator God. Do you have that large a view of God? They had a large view of God. Now, we're regularly tempted tempted to think that God has lost control. We can look at the pandemic. We can look at the craziness of the politics. We can look at injustices both in our country and around the world. We can look at betrayals that we've been through in our own experience, and we become disheartened. We need to remember that the God we are dealing with is the one who not only made us, but made everything. And on our hardest days, we need to recognize that Jesus the Son, God the Son, was willing to go to a cross out of love for us, and was raised and was seen. Their prayer showed their confidence in the greatness of God, which led to their boldness. They also have great confidence in the inspiration of the scriptures. There's one little verse in there. I don't want you to miss it. It's pretty important. Verse 24, they're talking about Psalm to which they're about to quote from, but they said, You, speaking to the sovereign Lord, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant. Right there is what we believe about the scriptures. It's something God spoke by God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring a servant, in this case, David, but it's God's words through human vessels empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, they say long ago, so so what? Well, we have a view of history, the most recent thing is the best thing. They had the opposite view, which is long ago, if God spoke a long time ago, and it's still speaking to us now, that's a sign of the greatness of God and his foresight in giving us his word. Doctrine of inspiration in one little phrase, You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant. They had confidence in the scriptures. We live in a world skeptical of the inspiration of the scriptures. And often that skepticism is inside the church as well as outside the church. But if we're going to follow the God that revealed himself in Jesus... We are the people of the book. Jesus told us that not a jot nor a tittle would pass away. It's God's word. And then they quote Psalm 2 and listen to Psalm 2 and the verses they use. What's striking is that they have confidence that the word written long ago is speaking directly into their current experience. Why, are the na- why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with feudal plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah, or in the Hebrew, against his anointed. And then they say, that's what happened. Next verse. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against <laughs> Jesus, your holy serv- servant, whom you anointed. And then they go on to say, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. They had an immediacy of them, to still in their midst. And, 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 met. and met. we pray the Lord's prayer, and pray by and that I will be done. They have, they have, they but they a do we have the confidence that God's kingdom, still kingdom is still coming? And that it it's still, it still being done. Do, do we, have done? we have the so same confidence, have confidence that they today, had in there? But what's most remarkable about that about is what they asked God, ask God to do. But if it to now, me, if it were up to me, and my leaders had just been jailed, and I knew that they'd been threatened, And I knew at one point they'd kill Jesus. I think I would pray, initially at least, for protection, wouldn't you? For safety. Or I might pray for a safe place to go. That's not what they pray for. Verse 29, And now, O Lord, hear their threats, and give us, your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Now, the good news here is they're not fundamentally different than we are. They were afraid of persecution, but instead of praying for protection, which is fine to pray for, and there's lots of scriptures about praying for protection, but instead of choosing that as their top priority, they pray for boldness in proclaiming the gospel. They understand that the key issue is not safety, but despite their fear, to be bold. And they also pray for miracles, I might add. Stretch out your hand, they say, with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So these are the results of their prayers. First of all, the place shakes, a sort of mini earthquake. God reaffirming to them that that they're in the, on the right path, just as there was a shaking during the day of Pentecost not long before or earlier when Moses received the law, uh, the law on Mount Sinai. So God has heard their prayer. He's even shaking uh, things to, to affirm it. And the second thing is that they become more bold, which you can see in the passage. But one more thing to note. Because they see the Lord working among them, They become radically generous. They act as if their money and their possessions are not their own, but belong to everyone in their community in need. Now the idea of, in a sense, gathering all of your resources together and taking care of everybody sounds practically un-American. They gave from their own possessions. It's not that things were taken from them. There's liberty here. But God has so impacted their lives that they care about each other. Now, the disciples had already had three years of traveling together with a common purse, with a common set of resources. So they were used to living like this, but now it's infected the rest of the community. It's a way of them trying to love each other. I want to end with two stories, a quote, and the questions I promised to leave you with at the beginning. The first story is a story of praying for boldness. Years ago, Marcia and I were living in an apartment, and upstairs there was a woman and her adult daughter, the adult daughter's name was Sally. Uh, and Marcia decided to reach the neighbors that she would have a a neighborhood Bible study. She went around and talked to others that she knew and the Bible study night was set, but she was just reluctant. She didn't didn't feel like she knew them very well, she had no idea where they were spiritually, Uh, and, and she just put off and put off and put off inviting them to the Bible study until the day before. Some of you operate that way. And she said, you've got to pray for me. I'm going to go invite them. But she was shaking, and she really was nervous about it. And so I, I literally knelt down at her couch, and I, I prayed while she was there, wondering what was going to happen. She went up, and, and she began by saying, um, I'm, I'm starting a reading group. We didn't even call it a Bible study. I'm starting a reading group. Uh, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in coming. And they asked what would be the natural question, which is, what are you reading? She said, well, we're reading the Bible. Well, at that point, Sally, the daughter, was amazed. She said, last night, I watched a movie about Jesus on TV, and I was so taken by it that I, I prayed, God, please bring me someone so I can learn about Jesus and learn about the Bible. She'd gone two days before, that wouldn't have happened. It was within God's timing. It turns out, as we got to know her better, that Sally had been a member of the cult, the Moonies, for years, and was totally devastated by that experience and had wanted nothing to do with God again until that night when she'd seen that film about Jesus. And she came alive in the Lord. Now, I call that boldness because Marcia went up the stairs and talked to them. You, you might call it timidity, but she got it done. I think sometimes we think of boldness as, as being loud or being confident. Or, no, I think boldness is just getting to the people around us. That's sufficient boldness. The second story is a story of a miracle. young man named Yehuda in Israel... We later got to know him because he was our guide, but his backstory was that he'd been a famous runner in Israel, nationally ranked, uh, preparing for the Olympics. But in the midst of everything else, there was an accident uh, and, uh, and he was injured and paralyzed from the waist down. And was in hospital for a year. They told him he'd never walk again his dad, who was a rabbi, got their home ready with rails and everything else so that he could, they could accommodate a wheelchair as he got back to their kibbutz. It was a hopeless situation. A couple came through the hospital and they said, Do you mind if we pray for your healing? And he said, No, he didn't think much of it. He was not a strongly believing Jew. They said, "Would you mind if we prayed in the name of Jesus?" And from Yehuda's perspective, it did matter. Okay, that's fine. So they prayed for him, and they left. Nothing much happened, but the next day he woke up and realized he had feeling in his legs. He swung his legs out of the bed, legs that had not been in use for a year, stood up, and started walking. Radically healed. He then went to look for Christians to say, tell me more about this Jesus, and he came to be a follower as well. Now, I tell you that story because miracles are still happening, but are we still praying for them? We're in a very skeptical culture right now, not skeptical in a sort of philosophical sense, but basically everybody has their own story, their own experience, and your experience or your set of arguments or your philosophy can't break through. I was raised in a generation where you gave rational arguments for the existence of God or for faith in Jesus, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we are in an irrational culture right now. But when God touches a life in a powerful way or a less powerful way, whatever, God can get people's attention. But are we praying for him to do that? A miracle is when God gets through to a heart, whether it has something to do with a healing or whatever. Whatever it takes for God to get through to a heart is a miracle. Are we praying for miracles? And then finally, a note about possessions. Scriptures are pretty clear, we own nothing, everything is on loan to us, and you see that in the description of their common life together at the end of uh, Acts chapter four. So I just wanna use a quote from C.S. Lewis when it comes to possession. Some of you may know a book he wrote years ago called The Screwtape Letters. It's a a book that he said when he was writing it was very hard for him spiritually because it's a book uh, of the advice of a senior devil to a junior devil as to how to tempt people. And, and, and uh, Lewis said it, it basically warped him to try to think like that. But a very effective book. So what I'm going to read to you is the advice of a senior devil. It's the way to tempt people. And, he, and Screwtape writes, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Scruti goes on to say, it is if a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in titular command of some great province under the rule of wise counselors Should come to fancy that he really owns the cities, the forests, and the corn in the same way as he owns the bricks on his nursery floor. The point is that boy would have no claim to ownership. We have no claim to ownership. Everything we have has been given to us one way or another. And that's what the early church lived into we don't, it's not ours in the first place. And it's, be, it's to be used for God, it's his. So here are the closing questions, the take-homes, if you will, not applications, just questions. First of all, how large is your view of God? Do you believe he's sovereignly in control of all history and especially your history? Do you believe that he is the sovereign Lord who raised Jesus from the dead, God the Father raising the Son from the dead? Do you believe he's the Lord who inspired the scriptures? Do you believe that you could see him at work now? Secondly, are you praying for boldness in sharing the gospel? And are you praying for each other's boldness? That's what was going on in this passage, they were just not praying for themselves. They were praying for the community to be bold. In a gracious way, but a powerful way. And our, along the lines, are you praying for miracles? And finally, what are you considering to be your own? Are you generous with what God has given you? Are you generous, probably most importantly, with the time God has given you? That's our greatest possession. And one follow-up question. Are you passing on the answers to these questions to your children and grandchildren? To tweak one line from that strange song one more time, as you consider these questions, let me summarize them this way. As you look at the believers in Acts chapter 4, what should you have that you don't have now. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you answer those questions and then ask the same Holy Spirit to empower you to live out the answers. We're gonna be praying for the confirmands in a moment that the Holy Spirit would be filling them. We all need to be filled if we're going to be serving God the way they did then. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I thank you for those who were bold enough to share good news with us, whatever it took. And we ask that you would open our hearts to that good news, and again, and we pray too that you would uh, give us a larger view of who you are, the God of heaven and earth, the God of all of history, of, of all the atoms in the universe, the God of our history we pray that we would boldly share that good news, that you're that kind of God and that you demonstrated your love for us through Christ. Forgive us for all the things that we have held so closely that were never ours in the first place, that we may demonstrate your love to a world in desperate need of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.